Hello, and welcome to Shut Off That Noise. I'm your host, Craig Riddock. Over the coming podcasts, I'll be taking you on the road and down the wires for in-depth interviews with makers of art, music, design, and architecture. We'll gain insight into the ways in which they find inspiration, how they generate innovative ideas, find new perspectives, and create bold new works in often uncharted territory. In this week's episode, I visit with emerging architect Tone Frazina. Born in Hamilton, Ontario, and schooled in Toronto, Tone has worked and lived on both coasts. Working in New York City with the team at Brisbane Brook Bainan Architects on the transformation of Madison Square Garden, and later as the project director of the LA Forum renovation. Before even beginning his master's year, Tone has overseen more than $1.8 billion worth of architectural projects. Tone is presently a master's candidate at the School of Architecture at Ryerson University. He's working on his thesis, which explores temporary urbanism. Temporary urbanism has the power to transform otherwise derelict spaces into places that are vibrant and walkable and revitalized. Just in the same way that food trucks and hot dog stands can transform a busy sidewalk into a fine dining experience, pop-up art installations and architecture can bridge the gap during development and construction or revitalize public space cheaply, quickly, and temporarily. Tone also happens to be a brilliant DJ, so I brought along a stack of my favorite drum and bass records for him to spin. So tonight's background music is from my record collection and spun by DJ Tone. Okay, and this thesis is talking about, or at least my particular interests, are in temporary urbanism and this idea that there are moments of time, both socially and culturally, these spectacles that happen in the city. And I'm looking at it in the the lens of kind of as urban acupuncture. So these moments in time radiate this moment of spectacle, this moment of engagement in the city. An architect creates a literal space and circumstance and a set and setting for people to interact. And a DJ does something similar in that a DJ, through their DJ set, creates a place and a sonic space and an environment for people to engage. Yeah, that's definitely something where I've drawn parallels from between my interest in music and my interest in design. Uh, And I've, you know, through professional work, it's tough to connect those um, those stories because you know you have a client. You're, it forces you to make certain decisions professionally that you don't do independently. Whereas my final year at school has allowed me to really explore blurring those boundaries between musician or DJ and architect and designer. So you know I've chosen this thesis as a vehicle to explore kind of street art or street culture in architecture. So I'm really interested in alleyway spaces. So I'm really focusing on the kind of back of house service side of the city. That's kind of hidden and not really intended to be exposed. Sort of like the uh, alleyways behind Queen Street that are littered with uh, graffiti and, and tag art. Uh, would that be an example of a, yeah, that's, a back alley space yes. that sort of transformed? Yes. And yeah, the graffiti is what transforms that space from just the service corridor to 
this cultural spectacle. Back there, I made a Toronto-specific reference to alleys in the fashion district that are covered with mural-sized graffiti art. So we're we talking about installations that are as elaborate, say, as a Nuit Blanche installation that would be sort of permanently there. Nuit Blanche is an art festival that happens every October in Toronto. All night long, the city is transformed with installation art. Something that's... And what separates what you're talking about from, say, like a public art installation? So... I do draw a lot of parallels from Nuit Blanche because that's definitely a great uh, experience in temporary urbanism. And the kind of word temporary is something that could be a couple of hours to a day to a week to a couple of years. For example, the community market at the well, which is a um, shipping container public market at Front and Spadina, is a temporary installation before they do a large development there. And that installation may be active for up to two years before that development takes over. But it's this moment in time, this social engagement that you know, transpires and creates this kind of cultural realm in a certain spot of the city. So my work, and I'm thinking in, in the realm of architecture in the alleyway as being kind of temporary, in quotes because it's not a permanent fixture. It's something that happens in time, just like the graffiti art. It's not permanent as much as it looks permanent because you can't wash it off, but it's an ever-evolving wall, right? It's an ever-evolving canvas. And that's how I see how can temporary urbanism add to that realm of the alleyway to generate kind of a, an interesting space in short or long periods of time. It contrasts public art because it's something you engage with and architecture is something that uh, creates those moments and those experiences like we talked about and it's something you can engage with and take away from and I guess public art in a way has that as well but it's I don't know more about redefining space rather than just being in the space. For the better part of the last decade, Tone has been primarily involved in arena-sized venues like Madison Square Garden in New York and the Los Angeles Forum. The renovation of the Forum was pretty much his responsibility. He was the project director for the entire transformation. These are both storied venues that were places that just naturally produce spectacular, historic, nostalgic memories. They're like a memory factory and a place where people come together. I asked Tone to explain what he found exciting about working in the context of a large-scale venue. Particularly on projects like those you've mentioned is an opportunity for people to come together and each night is a different spectacle. And the great thing that of Madison Square Garden versus the LA Forum was at the Garden it, the building also needed to transform. It housed multiple different entities, whether it was a hockey game or a basketball game or a concert. You know, the spaces were designed to change and revolve around, you know, what you were going to see.
whereas the forum was a fairly static environment. And what would only change is the bowl setting, for example, the stage setup and you know how many people were there. Whereas the garden was, you know, whether it from the, the lights or banners or signage, you could tell you were, you know, at a basketball game versus at a hockey game. I think they pretty much changed everything except the ceiling, really, didn't they? Yeah. And it took a number of years and a number of stages to tear out the bottom bowl, and then uh, a season went by with things all hidden behind hoarding, and then another season, uh, dark uh, period happened where you did the upper bowl next, right? Yeah, I believe there were seven phases in total, uh, starting with a few back of house spaces and moving into the front of house spaces. How many years were you involved? I was. I was involved in the Madison Square Garden project for three years, and I spent two years on location in New York City. So you weren't actually in school at that time, or did you come into... No, I graduated in 2010 from Ryerson, took my undergrad in architecture, and began working on the garden within six months of working at the firm. What is it like living in New York and working to that pace? It's exhilarating, uh, to put it into a single word. It's such an extreme environment where it's constantly involved around work and hustle and you know, getting things done. And to some people, it is a little draining, but you build energy off of that environment. And I feel like you really need to be there full time in order to absorb that. And when I first moved down there for seven months, I was traveling back and forth between Toronto and New York, flying in every Monday, flying out every Friday. And I wasn't, that started getting draining because I wasn't able to completely absorb the energy of the city, especially unwinding, because the unwind in New York is just as interesting as the hustle. And in a way, it's almost a hustle in itself, the unwind. Uh, so it's really, you know, once I moved there, and being kind of in that culture and wanting to you know, be a part of that and, and make my own moves in that area or in that environment was very, yeah, I, to sum it up would be, it's an exhilarating atmosphere. Now, did you take with you that sort of sense of urgency and fire under your shoes with you to Los Angeles? Was there a real different feeling to that project and a different feeling just simply being on the West Coast? A hundred percent. From the very first day, from the first interaction, it's, you really get the hustle in New York is from the people and the aura around everyone doing everything all the time. And when you move to Los Angeles and kind of working on the same thing, but in a different city, everybody's completely different in terms of their attitude and their pace. Like you move, I moved to Los Angeles and it was just, the time had stopped, <laughs> it felt like. And it was like, we'll get to that. Yeah, we can do that. And just the, the pace of people's voices and, you know, work got done, but it just seemed like it happened so much slower, even though my project was only eight months long and it was an incredibly fast-paced job and got built and got open on time. But it just seemed like 
nothing was moved. The gears don't move as fast in Los Angeles as they do in New York. At least they don't appear to. So what is the kind of New York expectation? I mean, not just from the client, but from your coworkers that are there on the ground that are native to New York City. The interesting thing about New York City is that everything needs to get done yesterday. I need that yesterday, you know? Everything's as if it's already done or in the process of being done. Whereas in Los Angeles, it's about, we can get that done tomorrow. It's almost kind of a reverse. I, I talk about living in both cities because I lived, actually lived in New York for two years as well, so I kind of have an, an exact comparison between the two. And it's entirely 180. The weather is 180, the attitude is 180, the people, it's the exact opposite. It's like you, I moved to a twilight zone within a week. <laughs> Moving back to the LA Forum, uh, it was a storied venue that uh, had its glory days. There's a great deal of nostalgia surrounding it. So there was a goal to preserve the past and not just recreate it, but create a greatly improved new experience. You have to consider from the beginning the value of the project. And it wasn't about changing the venue, but it was about enhancing it. It's about taking the, the past and embracing what was there and heightening that. And dealing with the National Park, or the National Trust Park in America, who's based out of Washington, D.C., they have specific checklists as to, you know, what, may what provides value to a project or to a site, that sort of thing. So there were two elements. The first was the history of you know, the sports teams and the events. There was an Olympics there in 1984 versus the history of the architecture, which uh, Charles Luckman, who was the architect, was built in 1967. It was very futuristic for the time. And you can see it in what happened at LAX with the uh, installation of the restaurant to you know, that was, I believe it was called Googie Architecture, what was coined in Los Angeles at the time. And it was about creating these environments that were unlike anything else. And really kind of really make you kind of gawk at, you know, be out there. There were a few things at the forum that were very specific. The one was the uniform colonnade on the outside of the building. There are 80 columns in total, and it's basically built off of the classic Roman Colosseum. So everything is symmetrical, at least appears to be symmetrical, because the inside guts actually, you know, have moving parts and aren't, aren't identical. But, you know, from the outside of the building and walking as a patron through a concourse into a bowl into your seat, the building seems symmetrical to the public eye. Um, and then the other was in that concourse space, like I talked about, there's a very kind of futuristic sculptural ceiling that, you know, as it was built in 1967, was completely filled with, with asbestos. So we had to strip out and remove basically all the asbestos material down to basically the chicken wire and do different tests on spraying a new acoustic ceiling that appeared to be identical to the existing. So I think we went through eight or nine different spray tests adjacent to the existing and had these, um, the Historic Society come out, evaluate 
what the pros and cons of each were and match almost identically what the existing condition was. Which was... Except being asbestos. Yes, but <laughs> being brand new and not filled with asbestos. <laughs> so, you know, there's interesting little tinkering like that, but from what I've heard in my experience with fellow colleagues and friends of mine, it was a very relaxed process at the forum versus you know, some other places which are very much in you know, the public spotlight as needing to be very articulated. For example, the Bisha Hotel and Residence on John Street, or no, sorry, Peter Street, that's being built right now. They took down the existing facade brick by brick, numbered every brick, and had to rebuild it back in the exact formation it was in. So, you know, there's certain, there's certain levels of uh, meticulousness in historic societies where, you know, at, at the forum was very, at the forum it was not as imposing as it, as it is in the present. There were a lot of considerations to improve the acoustics. And then also just the, the logistics of being able to fly lighting rigs and sound rigs that are so much bigger and heavier than they were back in the day. Well, the acoustics was a very detailed design discussion right from the very beginning of the project. It's always been touted as being one of the greatest sounding rooms in the world. Already before the renovation. Before the renovation. In the 70s and 80s, every band wanted to play there. You know, you had Led Zeppelin record half of how the West was won in the forum, and the other half they recorded in Long Beach. But you know, these, these were buildings that were icons in terms of the, the music legend. So anything we did in the bowl needed to enhance the sound, not take away from the sound. And you know, from the very first note that Glenn Fry ever played on the stage as the first artist back in the forum, you know, we were all biting our nails being like, you know, if he gives us, you know, if he hears one bad sound, from that guitar and that first chord of Hotel California, you know, we didn't do our jobs right. <laughs> but luckily we had a great skilled acoustician on the team from Dallas, WJHW is the name of the firm. And we were very conscious of every move we made in the bowl. Another thing was the, the rear cladding of that bowl was a perforated metal uh, siding, basically. Covered in lead. <laughs> so, you know, you're dealing with these, as soon as you touch it, you need to make it, you know, up to code for today's standard. So there's a big discussion on, do we take these down, put insulation behind them, as soon as we touch any of these panels, we have to completely strip it of all the lead. So it was a very rigorous process and inevitably we ended up taking down a majority of the panels and scraping them and electrifying them to remove all the existing paint and respraying them with an enamel-based paint. Okay, well we're really getting down to the nuts and bolts of things and right down to the enamel paint. By taking them down and putting these panels and putting insulation and putting it back up, you're creating a more sound-absorbing environment, and then there's a big discussion, well, is it gonna make it better, or is it gonna make it worse? We added sound baffles at either end of the 
stage, the, the back of house and front of house, to absorb a lot of low end frequencies because it's such a huge environment. You know, it's, it's a, one of the massive, I believe it's the largest indoor concert venue in the world. It seats about 18,000 people. And it's all soft seats like a theater. So that was another consideration is putting in soft seats allows you to absorb more sound. Because, you know, every hard surface wants to reflect sound. What were the seats before? They were plastic back and vinyl bottoms. So they were fairly reflective surfaces in terms of sound. So you needed human bodies in there to yeah, get the padding. So, exactly. So you could have a half full house now and the sound will just get absorbed by the yeah. empty seats. Yeah. And they That's changed the color was. too to kind of reflect a big change. It was kind of a loud yellow and orange thing. Well, so it's designed on an uh, east-west axis. So one half of the bowl was all orange to represent the sunset, and the other half was yellow to represent the sunrise. That's a really cute idea. Yeah, Charles Luckman was, you know, having some fun in the 60s, right? <laughs> we were looking to rebrand this building, but at the same time maintain its historic legacy. So the outside of the building was existing, was painted red at the very beginning of um, its, its existence. So we brought the red from the out, the fiery red walls from the outside of the building and brought it into the forum and into the bowl. So that's what was kind of the decision driver and how do we, what is our signature color and through the building, which was that kind of iconic forum red, which we actually branded and, and is now a, you know, a color. Architecture is an ever-evolving industry, and it's every day, every hour, it's including more and more people. And, you know, architecture is about serving the purpose of human interaction or, you know, human engagement, whether it's a shelter or it's a concert hall or an office building. No matter what we do, every day we're interacting with some form of design. So, Design itself is innately a collaborative environment and it's always about bringing other people in. Whether they're experts or just someone else to bounce an opinion off of. I believe even in school as, you know, you're, like you say, you kind of work in a vacuum as a, as a student project, but those projects seem to fail more than succeed and it's really the projects that you're engaged with your peers, even if it's an independent project. The finding the balance between kind of working independently and collaborating in a studio environment and having that studio culture where, you know, you're in a room doing your, drafting your designs, people around you are doing the same thing independently, but you're able to bounce ideas off of and kind of collaborate and, and work together, I think is, is so beneficial to the design process. Recently, we've been talking in a seminar class I'm participating in about the future of architecture and the future of architectural education. And it's such a classic way of teaching architecture right now, worldwide. There are 
some schools that are starting to, or not starting to, but have been, but are evolving this kind of education of architecture. One example is SciArc, which is in downtown Los Angeles. And it's about bringing in other people from other professions, from other faculties, whether it's the humanities or uh, philosophers. Nowadays we have engineers involved, but it's really about bringing in a balance of bunch of different creative minds from the creative arts uh, to develop a more general understanding of architecture as an art form rather than as to serve a human function. Thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. So thanks a lot. And, uh, well, thank I look, you. I look forward to seeing uh, the results of your work at the end of the year. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening in on my conversation with Tone Frazina. If not only to go back and get my records, I'm going to be seeing Tone again sometime soon. And I'll let you in on a little secret. There's going to be an episode in the future that features Tone, but more in his capacity as a DJ. In next week's episode, I'll visit with electronic musician and composer Steve Castellano. And Steve's going to give us a close look at how he composes music and soundscapes using a modular synthesizer. I'm Craig Riddock, and you've been listening to Shut Off That Noise. <laughs>